Welcome to the Garage Gym Podcast with Parker Olfert and Alex Haig. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Garage Gym Podcast. Today, I'm here with Artem Bazayev. And Artem runs a company called Northlift Belts, and he is the premier manufacturer of handmade leather goods for all lifting or strength sports. So Artem, give us a little bit about yourself. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, <clears throat> a little bit about myself. Uh, do you want me to start from like the beginning, the beginning? <laughs> sure. When, when were you born? <laughs> <laughs> I, so I was born in 93 in Russia and I uh, came over here on the floating door in 1997 the with my family. Door. Yep. Uh, the, the fastest way of transportation across that ocean. Um, and um, yeah, I spent a lot of my uh, youth in gymnastics, um, took it uh, competitively for a little while. Um, then After high school, I transitioned into personal training in 2011, and I decided to pursue that that industry a little deeper. So I um, pursued a kinesiology degree through the U of A and McEwen. I started at McEwen, but yeah, joint joint program. Are, Are you in that, were you in that program too? No, I started at U of A. I never really understood how that joint program works. You just do half of it at McEwen, basically. Like, so, do, you, do you start at McEwen and do a full like year or two at McEwen, or do you do like half and half from the get go? I think uh, I think it was you could like take a maximum of half your course credits at McEwen, and then yeah, and then you transition to the U, um, and yeah, that degree took me a long time to get so i just graduated last march in 2020 i think the degree took me six or seven years why did it take you uh, man i was in in the beginning i was like yeah i'll just go to school do whatever take three classes a semester um just really took my time because school was super fun like um especially um especially the McEwen gym I just like, I had so much fun there, uh, meeting new people and like meeting my McEwen crew. And that's where North of Belt started as well. And, uh, I think I just had, yeah, I think I just had so much fun. I didn't want it to end. So I just kind of, I just kind of kept stretching it on. Also, um, when I started North of Belts, it started taking up a good amount of my time and, um, I used it as a way to make an income. So uh, taking four courses or more uh, was pretty challenging to balance uh, work and school at the same time. So um, yeah, graduated in 2020 from the U with a kinesiology degree in sports performance. And here I am working in a shop, making weightlifting stuff, weightlifting belts. Yeah. University is definitely a lot of fun. And I find that there's a lot of people that are like, Hey, I'm going to take my five courses. I'm going to get it done as soon as possible. And mm-hmm. then they just drive themselves into the ground and forget to have fun while actually learning about things they're interested in. So if you can take three courses and stretch it out, but still make an income and have fun, I definitely think that's the better way to do it. I don't regret anything at all, but I mean, like 
I was, I was pretty stupid when I was 21 years old anyway. So as, as we <laughs> like, all are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I feel a lot more, uh, I feel a lot more balanced. I think now that I'm 28 years old and it's like, I've now been coaching people for nearing 10 years. So I feel like I kind of have, uh, an even grounding, I guess, in the industry and like the research space and stuff like that, that, um, man, if I just went straight into a kin degree and ripped through it, cause I graduated high school when I was 17, like freshly 17. So if I went straight from 17 years old, ripped through a kin degree and popped out of school at 20 years old or like 21 years old, what's seven plus four. So you can't even do that. Um, at 21 years old, like, I don't know, man. Like I was, I was pretty ridiculous when I was 21. Uh, I think uh, we were talking before the show how um, loud and colorful I was at the McEwen gym. That was me at 21, 22 years old. So I think I've kind of like calmed down since then. I'm a little bit more easy to easy to digest now <laughs> than I was back then. I don't know, man. Being hard to digest is like it's fun. <laughs> better than being a boring nobody that's just the same as everyone else i i can't i can't do it <laughs> i can't do that can't be one of the masses i guess although it's it's nice to be one of the masses it sometimes depends on uh, depends on the topic and uh, what we're measuring like like driving on the right side of the road it's <laughs> nice to be part of that mass <laughs> yeah, you don't you need to be in there yeah, you don't got to be cool. Start driving on the left. Look at all these sheep driving on the right. I'm woke. Look at all these sheep driving in the actual road and not on the shoulder. My goodness. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you said that Northlift Belt started kind of at the McEwen gym. Give us a little more about that. How did that begin? Yeah, so this, uh, this was probably 2013 or 2014. I had made my first belt, I think, yeah, I think I'd made my first belt in 2013. Um, my history is kind of, who knows? Uh, but anyway, it was around there and um, I started meeting a lot of people at the McEwen gym, um, meeting a lot of power lifters and ollie lifters uh, at the, there's like a, the gym there is split in half basically. So like the other half section is filled with uh, the powerlifting racks and the platforms and stuff like that. So we had a, we had a group of people that hung out in there. Um, I started, yeah, started meeting a lot of people, started making friends. And I remember I bought a belt from a big company and who shall remain got, nameless. Exactly. Nameless. Yeah. Um, and then I remember like the day that it got to me, I took it out of the box. I put it on and I'm like, I hate this. I hate this so much. <laughs> so I literally, I, I just, I sold that belt to a friend and I'm like, I can do this. So I, um, my dad was a leather worker himself in back in Russia. He had his own shop. And um, so he had a sewing machine, like a industrial sewing machine. So I produced my first belt at that point. Um, the sewing machine was absolutely not powerful enough. So like, you know, like on a, on a regular electric sewing machine, you have like a foot pedal, right? So you press the foot pedal and then it sews. 
out of here, uh, it sews by itself. Um, this machine wasn't strong enough, so I had to hand crank every single stitch because the machine wouldn't wouldn't feed through it. So I think I still have, yeah, I think I still have my first belt somewhere there. But anyway, um, I just started playing around with designs. I went to my local suppliers, bought some leather. Um, I guess I've always been kind of like a creative guy. So I thought right away, like, what is, what is the most annoying thing about powerlifting belts? And right away, it was, they're too thick. They're too dense. Um, they're too stiff. They hurt when you wear them. Like you're already uncomfortable under a heavy ass bar. Why should you be more uncomfortable is kind of like my, my thought process there. So I designed my first model, which, uh, which is called the Atlas, which has a tension belt of 65 millimeters around. And then it has an interior belt of a hundred millimeters. So you still get a full like hundred millimeters of bracing surface, but that smaller tension belt on the outside that actually creates, uh, that actually creates the tension. Um, it creates kind of like a smaller, smaller wrapping surface, and then it allows the interior belt to flex a little bit more and it accommodates your, your hips and your ribs, um, a lot better than like a conventional, really stiff powerlifting belt. So I started working on that design. I made a couple prototypes and then I approached two of my very good friends that are still my friends now. And, uh, I told them like, this is what I want to do. Let's see where this goes. And they gave me a small investment, um, which I, uh, paid back. And then with, with, with belts as well. Um, and I basically used my student loan. I sold my synthesizer. I sold my motorcycle. <laughs> I used like everything I had in my bank and I bought my giant sewing machine that, uh, I've been using ever since. So I think that was 2015 or 2014 that I got that sewing machine. And, uh, yeah, I've been using it ever since. And now the sewing machine is worth $2,000 more than what I paid for it. So I don't know how that happened. but Yeah. And I mean, I doubt you're ever going to get rid of that, but that's nice to know you bought it when it was cheap. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will not be, no, I won't be getting rid of that. There's like, there was a part of me that was like, oh man, like, wouldn't it be cool to have like a, like a vintage saddle machine that's like, you know, 50 or a hundred years old and stuff. But then I don't know. There's certain things that are like, there's certain things that are, that are cool because they're old, but then at the same time, it's just kind of like, you know what? Things have gotten a lot better. Yeah. Technology's improved <laughs> then, a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's quite nice. Uh, new comforts is quite nice. So it looked cool, but then I was thinking like, man, if I actually replace that thing and I start playing around on a hundred year old machine, I'm probably going to be mad. So I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to be as efficient as possible these days. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely attest to those super thick traditional powerlifting belts being uncomfortable. Cause like the first time you wear them and actually squat heavy, you bruise your hips, you bruise your ribs and they're yeah. basically all made for super heavy weights. And if you're like a 74 kilo guy, that's, that's not going to work too great for you. Or if you're like a 55 kilo girl wearing a belt that was designed for a super heavyweight man, it's not really going to fly. Yeah. Absolutely. The, uh, like the, the, the four inch standard 
right? Um, the four inch or the 10 centimeter standard in powerlifting is, it's completely arbitrary, right? It's going to be four inches is going to be less than somebody that's six foot five, 300 pounds. I mean, like they could probably wear a belt up to five or six inches and it'd be very effective. And four inches and 10 or 13 millimeters thick is just going to be complete overkill for, yeah, 55 kilo girl. That's like four foot, nothing. Right. So four inches is just, it's, it's an arbitrary, uh, it's just an arbitrary standard that we made. But so, um, that was kind of the big thing is that I started making belts that weren't double ply that weren't 10 or 13 millimeters thick. It's like, I was looking at these belts and I'm like, why? Like, I don't need this much. There's, <laughs> there's very few people that need this much leather. Um, so yeah, I just like, I think I'm approaching order number 700, but I've produced more than that in terms of belts. I've probably made, man, I don't know, maybe, yeah, between like seven and 800 belts probably that are out there right now. And like, I think in terms of like double ply, I've made maybe five. Yeah. Nobody asks for it um, because it's just, it's, it is unnecessary for the vast majority of people to go double ply. So like, most of my belts are between seven and eight millimeters thick. And that is like more than enough. Um, even, even some of those belts can be kind of stiff to begin with. And then obviously they'll break in and become a lot softer. So right after I made the Atlas, which was the hundred millimeter model, I made a, an 80 millimeter model or like what, uh, what a three inch belt is. Um, in the industry, people sometimes call them bench belts because you can arch really hard in a three inch belt and the belt also kind of keeps um, your bench shirt down if you're, if you're, um, if you're uh, geared, if you're a geared power lifter. So yeah, I made this 80 millimeter model, which is the Titan, which um, turned out to be pretty popular with like CrossFitters and kind of 80 millimeters seems to be a lot more, um, relevant to like most lifters that kind of do a bit of everything, right. They might do, um, CrossFit, they might do a mix of Olympic lifting and deadlifting and stuff like that and, and, and squatting. So the 80 millimeter came out to be pretty, uh, a pretty popular model. And then I think, yeah. And then I went on to make the Olympic model, which is the 65 millimeter, uh, around the front and sides. And then the, the 10 centimeter, uh, back brace, along the back, which is kind of like the, the prototypical or the classic um, weightlifting or bodybuilding style belt. And I've, I think I've improved on my models quite a bit over time. And um, yeah, so the, that's three models. And then I made a powerlifting model, which is just the classic double prong or single prong at four inches width. And then I also made a lever model, um, which is pretty much as simple as it can get, but there's still a few things that I've tried to make the, make the model my own, right. In some sense. And, um, man, tracking down levers was very difficult because when I first made them, um, stainless steel levers are now becoming more popular, but like 
when I, when I first started making them, like I remember the one stainless steel lever I bought cost me like $110 for mm. one lever when they first, when they first came out. Cause I was so afraid of my lever snapping because that's like actually a very common problem um, with lever belts that just snap. So um, yeah, I've switched completely to stainless steel levers. They're pretty much, I think they're unbreakable uh, to any human being anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, most yeah. stainless steel is pretty tough. Yes. Speaking of stainless steel, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm actually getting some handmade buckles out of, uh, out of stainless steel right now as well, which is just, again, kind of overkill, but I, um, I like to, I think I like to overkill some things in some aspects. So why not? Yeah, that's one thing I was kind of going to say about the stuff that you make a little bit is overkill because it's definitely the nicest stuff that I've ever seen. But again, I'm Thank not you. an expert. You're the expert. But I think that's what makes you and your company what it is, is because everything's handmade by you and everything is like artisan quality. Thank you, man. Yeah, I really, um, I really take pride in my work. And I think I, I think I take it very personally. That's probably um, a, a good and a bad thing <laughs> yeah. to, to take your work a little bit too personally, but it is what it is. And I, I, I definitely try my best and I'm very, um, I'm probably, I'm probably quite self-conscious about my work. So like, I, I really just try to do my best. Yeah. Because you're not like, you're not a big brand company. That's just like, okay, I'm trying to produce a profit. Like your work kind of reflects your personality to a certain degree. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, and my business is just me. Right. So, uh, I think most people, most locals anyway, like in Edmonton know that like North of belts is just hardy. It's just one guy, right. He makes everything start to finish. So it's, um, if you run a company of, you know, 20 to 50 people and even your production side alone, you know, maybe, maybe your belt has been touched by 10 to 20 different people. Um, through a whole bunch of different processes, through a billion different machines and, and presses and stuff like that. Maybe it's a little bit easier to kind of, I guess, pass the buck if something goes wrong with a, with, with a product or, or something like that. But um, yeah, every single step is by me. So I guess I have to take it personally because I'm responsible for every aspect of every product. Yeah. And then ends up with a better product right? Like you've made belts for quite a few like high profile lifters or Instagrammers, haven't you? Instagrammers. Yes. Um, my first, uh, on fitness. <laughs> my first belt, uh, the first belt that I made for like kind of a bigger name was Omar Isaf, big YouTube guy. Um, I guess if you don't know who Omar is and you're in the Canadian fitness market, I mean, come on, man. Is Omar Canadian? But, uh, Oh yeah. He lives in Ontario. Okay. There you, go. there you go. So yeah, I made this, uh, I made this pretty sweet Atlas belt for him and, uh, he made a nice video for me, hooked me up. It was pretty sweet. It was, uh, it felt, it felt, uh, pretty legitimate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, um, I made belts and straps for Bodhi and the Centavis, uh, also for his brother, Noah. Um, 
Man, Bodie is super duper strong, and he yeah. out of out of everybody I've made straps for, he is one of two people that have ripped my straps. Well, yeah, I don't think anyone's snatching or cleaning <laughs> as much as Bodie that's using your straps. I mean, he's yeah. definitely the strongest weightlifter in Canadian history, and he's like actually in contention for world and Olympic medals. That's crazy. I mean, actually, I was going to ask you because you know about Ollie lifting. Um, apart from Christine Girard, is there anyone in the modern era that has medaled at the Olympics as a Canadian? Not yet, but uh, Bodie Santavi and Maud Charon are both heavy contenders for a medal in Tokyo. Because I think now That's that sick. I think that now that North Korea said they're pulling out of Tokyo. Mod's probably going to be on the podium for at least one lift. And That's then sick. a couple of weeks ago at Pan Am's, Bodhi took an attempt at the Snatch World Record. So, I mean, he's pretty close. Goddamn. Yeah. That's, uh, it's pretty exciting to see some, uh, to see a Canadian like have that a level of competition. It was, um, it was on one of your previous podcasts I listened to. Um, of yours you guys were talking about I forgot who the guest was but you guys talked about um, the difference between you know the the athletic systems between you know Canada and China Russia Eastern Bloc countries Um, and uh, you guys were talking about how like you know a lot of a lot of Canadian lifters don't start at the ripe age of six years old right a lot of them started late teens or early teens, maybe if they're lucky. So, I mean, Bodhi isn't one of those people. I mean, he comes from a lineage of, of competitive lifters and he obviously started very young, but even still it's um, watching, watching Canadian weightlifters on the international stage, whether it's Tokyo or any other international competition, it's, it's a lot like watching a David and Goliath situation in a lot of ways, I think, um, because, because the support to this sport in Canada is, you know, it's quite slim. So almost non-existent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's very difficult. They, I I feel like they have to go through a lot more, a lot more hurdles, especially funding issues. Right. Just like (laughs) everything can be fixed if you put enough money into it. Basically. (laughs) You just throw dollars at it. Someone will win eventually. Absolutely. Yeah, like, saying, like, look at Bodie. He doesn't come from any sort of weightlifting system. He wasn't introduced to the sport in school. He literally, his dad taught him how to weightlift in their garage when he was like a child. And then yeah. he stuck with it until he's now like 25 or something. So he's been doing it for 20 years because weightlifting is like a marathon sport where the longer time totally. you spend in it, the better you're going to be. So if you start when you're 20, and then you go for 10 years and now you're 30, either you're not going to have gotten good enough and you're going to start declining or you're just going to be broken. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, even think about it, like who's, uh, isn't like Lu Xiaojun considered like an old guy now? Like yeah, he's like an old man in weightlifting now. Cause yeah. He's, and what is he like early thirties or something? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, yeah. The, the sport, the sport can beat you up pretty, pretty rough, especially if you, especially if you commit your life to it. Right. It's, yeah. I mean, it's similar to, it's similar to, to a lot of different sports. If you, if you do it full time for 10 or 20 years, 
there may be some, uh, there may be a price to pay. Yeah. And I mean, it's similar to any sport, but the longer you can stay in it without being injured is probably going to be the key to having that long-term success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very similar in powerlifting too. I mean, when I, um, when I first started in powerlifting, I think my first competition was maybe 2013 or something. Anyway, like I took, I took like a bench record, an Alberta bench record at my first meet in 2013. It wasn't, it wasn't like a big bench. It was just like, nobody was involved in the sport. Like there weren't any records basically. Um, and um, over time, I uh, like throughout my competitive career, like I just kept getting bumped lower and lower and lower and lower because just all these crazy strong ass juniors would pop out of the woodwork, right? They're like 18, 19 years old. And it's like, when I first started, like a 400 Wilkes was impressive. And now it's like 400. What are you like? Nobody cares. Right. It's like, yeah. now you have like, now you have like 66 kilo kids pulling like 300 kilos. It's just, it is insane. But my point was, is that, um, a lot of these, a lot of the guys that kind of beat me out, they just kind of disappeared. Like they, they, they burned really, really bright and then they would get hurt and then they would just disappear. And it's like, they'd go do whatever, whatever else. So in that point, like in that regard, um, it's, it's not enough it's not enough just to like the sport and it's not enough to even be good at the sport when you first start out. It's like, there has to be some kind of, some kind of passion and, and, and dedication for you to, um, for you to see your development long-term. And yeah, it's the exact same thing in powerlifting. Well, no, not the exact same thing in powerlifting. I think you can stay competitive in powerlifting maybe a little bit longer than Definitely you can in yeah. probably because, um, probably just because speed and technique are not as big um, are not that big of issues. And uh, there's, uh, there's also like lower mobility requirements. And if I remember correctly, speed and reaction time are some of the first things to start declining. Uh, and those elements just aren't as important in powerlifting. It's more of just like a grinding sport, right? Force yeah. lifting, it should be called, not power lifting. Yeah, force lifting, and then power lifting force. should be what weight lifting is. Exactly, that's right, yep. yeah. <laughs> yeah, because speed is definitely one of the first things to go. Like when you start turning 30, that's just going to go downhill. But your ability to output force, as long as you're healthy and uninjured, is going to go up well into your 50s. Is that so? Wow, yeah. right on. Well, yeah, because you'll see lots of the heavier weight classes – even in like masters 35 and 40 age groups are still competing into open. Oh, that's awesome. In, in weightlifting or powerlifting? Powerlifting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. There's a, uh, yeah. I mean, um, in terms of the Olympics and, and weightlifting, I guess it's kind of like a, a young person's game, right? It's like maybe 35 is the oldest that you'd see, but yeah, I mean, that's there's a too. Yeah, even 35 might be considered very old. Yeah. So um in powerlifting, it's it's really cool. I mean, like powerlifting started as a as a backyard sport. It was like the back end of weightlifting meets. Like people would just go into the back and like, let's see what you can squat, let's see what you can pull, let's see what you can like strict curl or whatever it was, right? So it kind of started as a 
as a, as an offshoot of weightlifting. Um, and then it was, uh, formalized by the IPF and, and so on and so forth. But it's, uh, it's a sport that can, that has, I think, lower barriers to entry. Definitely. Um, you know, squatting is sitting down and then standing up is a lot simpler than doing a snatch. Yeah. So, and a lot more people can coach a, a, a decent looking squat than the amount of people that can coach a decent looking snatch. So I think even the um, one barrier to weightlifting, for example, is the education aspect, right? Is to finding, is to finding a good coach, right? Yeah. That's not going to, that that's experienced and that, knows how to program properly that knows how to um, uh, program intelligently to not hurt you, for example, and, and knows how to move prop, uh, knows how to coach movement properly. Um, it's not enough for you to be just a good athlete in the sport. Coaching is something completely different. Yeah. Cause at least in Alberta, like I can count the number of really good weightlifting coaches on one hand, whereas for yep. powerlifting, like there's a whole bunch out there. Alberta is actually huge for powerlifting right now. Cause like you were saying eight years ago when you did your first meet, yeah, you had a bench record, but since then it's just exploded and Alberta's had like world medalists and world champions from all over. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. Bryce, uh, Bryce cranky chink out of, out of Calgary. He's been like, it's, it's been really cool to see him, uh, see him develop and like, see how much, see how much weight he's moving. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, Shane Martin, incredible guy, super, super strong. Um, Avi, is Avi from, from Alberta? I think, yeah, I think he used to be part of UAPA, didn't he? Oh, wait, no, Avi, no, Avi's from Calgary. Yeah, but still, Alberta, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, there's, uh, there's quite a lot of strong people. Teresa Parsons, also, world-level competitor. Yeah. I got her into powerlifting. I was her first powerlifting coach. Where did you find her? Uh, we met at uh, Rock Jungle, Rock Jungle Fitness on the West End. Um, oh, yeah. I was uh, I ran a strength club there for a very long time. I don't remember when I did my first one, but um, yeah, I would teach like powerlifting movements on Saturday morning or something, and then I had a small class of five or so people. And, uh, yeah, I met Teresa there. Um, Teresa got really good at CrossFit and then I was just there. I was like, I don't remember what our first conversation was, but I eventually, um, started, um, started coaching and started working together. I remember the first time. Yeah. I think I remember the first time at McEwen, she came to McEwen and we just like maxed out her sumo deadlift and it was like 140 kilos. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> just yeah just some people man some people just they they just touch the bar and they're like you are made for the sport because you are starting like 10 miles ahead of everybody else right yeah and uh it's about um if that person has uh has a passion for the sport whatever sport it is right it doesn't have to be powerlifting but if they have a passion for the sport it's like yes they started 10 miles ahead but again, that's not enough. Like they need to be passionate beyond that and to, again, see it long-term. And Teresa has been developing incredibly. She is super, super strong. She's one of the most focused people that I know. And uh, she follows the program to a T 
and um, yeah, she's doing great. Super, yeah. super happy for her. Yeah, and then speaking of Teresa, she's with uh, the Strength Guys now, right? I do believe so. Yes, yes. Yeah. Another Alberta powerlifting coach. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Alfred, Alfred. right? Yeah. Yep. Man, what is going on with Alberta? We we really are the Texas of Canada, aren't we? The cold, the cold Texas. The yeah, Texas the cold Texas. Snows in May. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell was that, eh? Jeez. Yeah. I know. I turned on like we had the one hot day there, and then I turned off my furnace. I'm like, okay, summer's here. It's hot up. It's over. Yeah. We're gonna yeah. turn off the furnace, and then it snows <laughs> the next day. It's great. Man, last last weekend, total burn. Our arms completely roasted all the way down. Face was red, burned my scalp. Five days later, it snows. Unreal. <laughs> Every, and it's like, it's like you'd, you'd think, you'd think that we just get used to it, but we don't. Every, every year this happens and every yeah. year it's shocking. Yeah, we're it's, always I'm still surprised as if it did yeah, <laughs> last year and the year before. And the yeah, year. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, another thing that I know I bugged you about for like a year or two was making wrist wraps out of leather. So what was it that I said that finally pushed you over the edge into actually making wrist wraps? Oh man. I just like every wrist wrap. Okay. So for those listening, there's wrist straps, right? Which are the straps that you wrap around a barbell and then they help you with pulling. And then there's wrist wraps, which are, the they can be made out of fabric out of stretch nylon or out of leather and they cover the the wrist joint and prohibit it from flexing um sorry extend extension yeah i have a kin i have a kin degree okay i know what i'm talking about um (laughs) so yeah the leather wrist wraps Every time I tried to make them, I hated them. They felt like crap. They felt super uncomfortable. Um, In hindsight, I think that's probably because I have a really ugly and messed up wrist. Um, I think, I think we found the name for this. It's called their ulnar protuberance or something like that. (laughs) But it's mine is like very aggressively popping out. Yeah. Mine's not so bad. Yeah, yours is pretty yours good. Is, <laughs> yours isn't bad, and mine is, like, huge. Yeah, on both arms. So wearing, like, stiffer leather wrist wraps around my wrist, like, it just felt like crap all the time. And I was like, why would I, why would I, de- why would I devote time into developing a product that I know is going to feel like crap for everybody? But um, you just kept poking me, man. You just kept poking and prodding, and I said, fine, buddy. And I actually like sat down, I made two prototypes, one for you and for another guy in the States. Um, Both of you guys liked them. And I tried making my, I tried making a pair for myself and I liked them a lot right away. So I knew I was onto something. I just needed to design my way out of a few um, common issues basically. So Again, this is just going to be on audio, but um, if you take a look at my uh, North of Belts Instagram, the straps, uh, the wraps are up there. And basically the belts, the way that I designed the belts is that they're movable. So you can account for this protuberance. Basically, you can drop a belt above it and a belt below it. And 
in that area, I also put in padding. So the padding allows a little bit of flex um, before the stiffness of the leather kind of wraps around the wrist. Um, but as soon as I started using them, I was like super happy with them. And I kind of now understand the difference between like a nylon stretch um, style wrist wrap that offers uh, like an insane amount of compression and stiffness, but it offers so much compression that you have to take them off after your set, right? They're very, they're very restrictive on purpose because you're benching uh, like a huge amount of load, right? Or you're squatting low bar and um, resisting extension is super important. But with these leather wrist wraps, um, what I've noticed is that they offer more of a stiff extension endpoint where it's like you have mobility about this much and then it just stops right there, which is really cool because basically you can put them on at the beginning of your workout and you don't have to take them, take them off. So, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a, like a passive, uh, passive extension support. So I've um, yeah, if it's not obvious, I think about these things very, very <laughs> deeply and like how, how I design my products and stuff. It's all, it's all super important to me. And um, like the feedback, I always take feedback super seriously and I'm always developing my products and like, Every couple of months, something in my product line has changed, whether a shape or a new way that I put something together or whatever, like I'm, I'm constantly trying to improve. Um, it's not on the website because I'm just constantly working at the table. <laughs> I get, I get so much of my business from Instagram anyway. I don't even, I, I like enough people visit my website and they contact me through my website but um, I get a lot of, I get most of my business from, from Instagram. Um, but I'm still very depressed with the growth. Only 3,000 followers. I think I made my first post in like 2014. And I just broke 3,000 followers. Yeah. Well, you're doing yeah. better than me. I'm at like 650. Gotta... Yeah, but how long, how long has it, have you been active? Yeah, I've been, I've been here for a year and a bit. Not quite as long as you. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, right? It's like I've, I started my... I think like a handful of uh, weightlifting um, weightlifting accessory companies have like started after me and they all have like four or five times the amount of followers that I do. I don't, I don't understand Instagram. When yeah. I make a post, when I make a post about like a product or something, it'll get like maybe 30 to like 60 likes or something. And then I'd make a post that's like showing me or, or my shop and it blows up. It gets like 150 likes in like six hours or something. I don't, I don't get Instagram. That shows but, who your audience is though. Your audience is people that care about you more so than just, <laughs> right? So why the hell, why the hell do I care about my product so much? God damn it. I just, <laughs> just post selfies of myself. No, I, I, I I'm kidding. I, I, yeah. I totally get it. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I am not immune to that either. It's like the, the story of your brand is so important um, because there's, there's so many similar products out there. Right. And um, my products can be very similar to a lot of other belts, but um, the story is a huge reason why somebody buys something. Oh, definitely. And the story is what can, what can really change um, a product's price. For example, um, I, I uh, like one of, one of the people that I really look up to um, 
his name is Peter Nitz. He's, um, he's a leather artisan in Switzerland. And I mean, this guy makes like $6,000 purses and like $700 card wallets. So like this thing, this thing, this is like a simple card wallet uh, that I make for 140, 120 bucks right now. He sells something very similar for like $700. And he was on a podcast and he was talking about like how he's developed his brand. And like, he's been, he's been at it for 12 or 15 years now. And it's, um, people really care about the story. They care about how your product is made. They care about who made it, right? What is the, um, what is the brand's history? Like, who is this person? And um, I, I'm trying to, I guess, I'm trying to incorporate that aspect into my business. Definitely. So, um, but it's something that I'm going to have to work on. Definitely. Like I spend a lot of my time at the table. Um, so, and as, as a lot of people know, my wait times are pretty long and I'm sorry, everybody, but like this stuff takes so long and it's like so much of it is just done. With, well, everything is just done with my two hands. So, Everything um, just takes a long time and I'm trying to improve that speed and improve that efficiency. And that's like my huge, that's kind of my biggest focus right now is to improve my efficiency in the shop so that people don't have to wait eight weeks for the product, right? They can, um, I can produce it a lot faster. And the story, hopefully I can, I can show more of myself and, and talk more about myself Um as the years go on. And I mean, even this opportunity is fantastic because I've never talked about my brand in depth like this with anybody. So thank you so much, man. Yeah, man. It's fun to have you on. And then uh, speaking about your efficiency, like how long does it typically take for you to make each one of your products? Like how long does it take to make wrist wraps or a belt? Um, so straps, I finally purchase dies, which are these clicker dies. They're like stamps. So they stamp out the entire, uh, they stamp out the entire strap. So a pair of straps can now take me five, five minutes maybe, um, with, with embossing and riveting and stuff like that. Uh, like, so like weightlifting straps now can, can be like that, but, um, some belts, um, I haven't shown it yet, but, uh, recently I made that, um, I made that Olymp, um, the Viking belt, which has like two, th- uh, two, um, oh, the fur on it. Yeah. No, no, no. They have like two Thor hammers on the side. And oh, then, um, yeah, I saw that one on your Instagram. It says something in the center. I forgot what it says, but yeah, anyway, it's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, something like that takes a very, very long time. And I have to reflect, um, I have to reflect the price with how much labor I put into that. Um, so yeah, something like that with drying times, like it can take, you know, two days. That's not, that's not to say that it takes me, um, you know, 16 hours of work, but it's, it's a process that'll take over two days to incorporate all the drying time of the paint and, um, and the tooling. Cause all the tooling is done by hand. All the painting is done by hand. So there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of processes that take me a really long time. Um, it's still very, it's still a lot of handwork, right? So yeah, there's a broad range. I can make some simple belts. Ooh, yeah, screen sharing. 
Victory or Valhalla. Yeah, there it is. Man, that belt was sick. Yeah, man, that's a good-looking belt right there. What What is that that it's on here? <laughs> <laughs> that is um, that is Nelby. So one of my one of my longtime uh, strength class clients, she crochets, and one day she just showed up to strength class with this imp, this <laughs> imp, and he has he's wearing a singlet and he's wearing a lever belt, and the singlet says Northlift belts on the back. And he's holding a barbell and plates, like, as you can see there. Oh, yeah, in his right hand. Yeah, she just made this for me. I, I, I love him. And I did, um, I did a, um, a post on Instagram, like, hey, what should I name him? And somebody said uh, Nelby, because it's like NLB. Oh, yeah. And that just stuck. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't, remember who, I don't remember who made that suggestion. If you're listening to this, please send me a DM. I would love to credit you. I love that name. It's stuck. Yeah, let's take a look through your Instagram here and look at some of this stuff. Like, uh, here's those and wrist gonna... wraps. And I think my favorite thing about the wrist wraps was that there's some other leather workers that make these leather wrist wraps, but they come mm -hmm. like all the way up to the middle of the hand so that they like hard restrict that extension. And then that's just so uncomfortable when you get zero extension. And then if you're someone like me, who's a weightlifter that likes to use straps on hang snatches, you can't use straps and really big wrist wraps at the same time. Cause then you can't feel the straps. You can't feel your hand anymore, but these are like just low profile enough to allow that little bit of extension that you're talking about and then still have straps on over top of them. Totally. Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, different people that are making them right now. They have uh, they have a tapered design, which is what you're talking about. They have a a larger, basically posterior section that extends that like prohibits the extension a little bit harder. And um, when I when I was designing these, I was not a fan of that because I had such a messed up wrist. I knew that I wanted the cuffs because every person's wrist is going to be shaped a little bit differently. I wanted the cuffs to have the option of wearing them upside down, wearing them on the other hand, wearing them twisted into a different position, right. To accommodate for that, for that unique shape of the wrist. Yeah. And if you have a tapered posterior section, you can't, you can't twist it. There has to, it has to stay in that position. So this is just something it, it made more sense to me to kind of have it all a single, a single width. So it would, uh, it would accommodate different, different wrists and be a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Cause definitely whenever I wear these, I'm always like, which one is the left, which one is the right, but there's not really <laughs> a right answer to that. And then if you have that big wrist protuberance, like you do, you can kind of wear it like right along the edge where that inside strap ends. And then there's a little bit of extra space there for it. Even on top totally. You can, yeah, absolutely. You can wear it that way. Um, and I mean, again, the, the whole inside there is, is padded. So that's the idea as well is that the padding will allow for some flex in, in the wrist. And another thing that's nice about leather is it does have a certain amount of give to it and it will kind of form to your wrist over time. As well. Yeah. Let's take a look at some of your other stuff here. Cause you don't just make, Lifting stuff you make actual like everyday wearing leather stuff too like camera straps and duffel bags absolutely. and all that stuff as well absolutely yeah these are uh that that's a dog strap 
that I made for uh, for 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 a Dougie named Noah. He came by and he was super cute. I was very happy to see him. You make I make yeah real people belts. I make belts for real human beings. Yes. <laughs> not for lifters, but for normal human beings. <laughs> no, for normal human beings. Weightlifters are not allowed to wear pants belts because exactly. they only wear they only wear yoga pants or uh, <laughs> big whatever whatever chunky drop crotch pants. Which I love, by the way. I love drop crotch. Like they're not sweats. They're like fitness. I think they're soccer pants. They have to be originally soccer pants. Yeah, they have to be. Yeah. Yeah, and then here's your. This is what the Titan. This is the Atlas. Atlas, yeah. Atlas, right? Mm-hmm. Then this is the Titan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lots of colors of straps. I'm sure that's easier now that you have dyes. Yeah, definitely easier now that I have dyes. Everything up until now has just been hands, 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 hands. It's nice to it's nice to simplify some of the process and be able to get my products out there faster, especially for straps. Like, I really try to like the wait time on my straps is not eight weeks. Yeah. And actually, speaking of which, I'm gonna try to do something which is basically like a strapped up Edmonton. I'm going to um, be releasing a whole bunch of straps, and they're gonna be on discount if you come and pick them up in Edmonton, because. If you're in Edmonton and you don't wear my straps, that's my fault because I obviously just have, haven't made enough yet. So yeah. I'm just going to try to finally just make enough and just load up the city with my stuff because Perfect. this this uh, this city has been fantastic to me. Um, so much of my business is, is local. And I really, really appreciate that support. Yeah, because I remember- look at that fanny pack. Yeah, it's a nice fanny pack, actually. It's a good Thanks dye on it. Thank you, bro. Yeah, because I remember when I first heard of you, I think it was from, I saw you tagged in one of Bodhi Santity's posts. And I'm like, oh, that's a nice looking belt. And then I went and looked at your Instagram page. I'm like, oh, I should, I should buy one of these. I, don't, I just started weightlifting. I don't have a belt yet. Might as well not buy a shitty one that I'm not going to like. Might as well spend some extra money, get a good one. Because like, you don't need to buy a second belt ever in your weightlifting career if you have a good one. So I'm like, okay. Then I look at your website. I'm like, oh, this guy's in Edmonton. Oh, he goes to the same university as me. <laughs> How have I not seen oh. this guy? <laughs> oh, we lift at the same gym. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's really cool. That's I, I felt I felt very similar. Like, do you know who Dean Somerset is? Yeah, yeah. I never knew he was from Edmonton, and then I'm like, oh, have I not seen? Right. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what the hell? Stuff is happening in Edmonton. There's yeah. famous people here. Yeah, like, people, people are from Edmonton other than just yeah, <laughs> yeah totally I remember because uh, I, I shadowed Dean um, quite a bit and he, he taught me quite a lot earlier in my career and uh, I remember I first I think I just like read something from him on, on, on Google or something and then like oh man like this guy's really cool he's really smart and I was like what the hell he's in Edmonton oh my god <laughs> Stuff is happening here. There's people here. Yeah, he's at, isn't he at Evolve downtown now? Yeah, he is now. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I'm just like, oh, I go there a lot. How have I not seen this Instagram famous person there? Exactly. This Instagram famous person. He's like seven feet tall in real life. Jesus. Big guy. Yeah. Great guy. 
All right. I think that covers mostly everything that we had planned to talk about. Do you have anything else to, any other topics you want to add in there? Um, thanks for starting the podcast. You know, there's, um, it's, it's really cool to, um, to see like a high quality show that's, uh, that's made locally. It's really nice. I'm very happy to be on it. Um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, man. How's your how's your uh, how's your training and how's your coaching been over this over this uh, fantastic year? Uh, I mean, it's been as good as it can be. I think it was like my training because now that I am in my masters through my first year, I didn't get a whole lot of training done because I was just trying to mm-hmm. survive school. So mm-hmm. Zoom school is very depressing. Let me tell you. Oh my god! Not, not a lot of fun. Not a lot of training could happen. But I was lucky enough, I bought an Aleco weightlifting bar, a squat stand, and like 300 kilos of plates, like two months before everything shut down last March, because I just bought it off my friend that was getting rid of it. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure I'll need this one day. And then two months later, everything shut down. And I'm like, good, good. I can still lift. Oh my God. A full, a full, did you, are your plates Aleco as well? I, my change plates are Laco, but the everything else was just uh, MDUSA. Man, that is sick. Why would somebody sell an Alico bar? <laughs> that's not something that you sell. You just buy it, and that's it. You hold it on forever. Yeah, and it's like it's a vintage one from like the late '90s that has the smaller uh, the smaller collar on it. Or oh, that's sick. Collar, but. Uh, yeah, and it's one of the ones that opens up and spins better the older it is. So I'm keeping it forever. But my friend that sold it to me had just lost his job and he needed some extra money after that. Mm-hmm. And he's like, here, I'll sell you all this for much less than I paid for it. And I'm like, okay. That's sick, man. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Alico is kind of like uh Alico's kind of like Toyota. There's um if you go like if you find like a nineties Alico bar or something like that, they're like, they're vintage. They don't, it's not that they lose their value. They just like hold on to their value for a very, very long time. And yeah. that's like, that's like Toyota pickups. I drive, <laughs> I drive a 1993 Toyota pickup, like a two wheel drive, just some, some tiny little truck. And like, I remember looking for, I remember looking for a truck like this. He posts the guy posted the ad I called him like five minutes after he posted the ad and I was like, Hey, like I need to come see this thing right now. He's like, yeah, sure. I drove over there. By the time I drove over there, he already had like five offers <laughs> on this dinky little truck because it's like, I don't know. There's just something about old Toyotas. There's something about older Lecos. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. You part of me is toyed with the idea of like, I could probably put this on Kijiji for like, I don't know, 1500, 1600 bucks and buy two bars instead. But, no, I can hold on to it. No, man, hold on to it. Hold on yeah. to it. Yeah. And I mean, Good since stuff. then, like I've moved into a new house since quarantine. I have enough room in my basement for three platforms. Ah, uh, yes. The, the, the dungeon gym. Yeah. The jailhouse gym. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. That's sick, the man. Platform right here. Hot water heater right here. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. What are you, uh, what are you doing for your master's? Masters of coaching. Very LTAD. Nah. Long-term nah. planning is just like, it's a good concept. But then if you try and actually plan, it's just like, okay, everything is going to, 
some variable is going to change in a month and then we're going to change everything as long as you have that overall concept uh, it's brave of you to assume that it'll take a month oh yeah it might take five minutes and <laughs> something's going to change and then yeah i can hope for a month before i have to change all the plans man it's so funny like it's so funny like coaching what was it uh the the class was um advanced programming or something like that at, at the U that I took and where you have to write like a whole year's program advanced of like a, methodology, a yeah. advanced conditioning methodology, man, what a hilarious concept Dude, that you are going to write out a year's worth of training that is going to be relevant to absolutely anyone at all. And it's yeah. like, why am I, why are we doing this at all? There's, I don't man. That was, that was so funny. The whole, the whole concept of, yeah. I mean, you guys talked about it in, uh, in another podcast as well about like this. It's almost like long-term planning to me has just turned into nothing, almost nothing more than like a feeling. It's just like, I feel, or I would kind of like this person to six months from now, maybe hit somewhere kind of in these numbers, maybe. Because yeah. it's like everything changes within a week. Um, they get sick, they move, they don't have access to equipment. Like, especially over this last year, like coaching my, uh, coaching my athletes has just been like every year, every week, it's like, okay, pivot here, pivot this, do this, yeah. do this, do this. And the whole idea of coaching to me has just like, I think I started coaching with a very um, not, not rigid, um, not rigid goals, but like I had very, I had more rigid concepts of what programming was, you know, yeah. like we got to do small up junior. Okay. So you know, every three times a week, like we have to keep adding this amount of reps, this amount of weight, right. Every week. And it's like, no matter what, this is the way it's got to go. And, um, my programming following kind of following the research and stuff like earlier in my earlier in my career, I was always like, okay, should I be like logging the total volume per lift? is does does this volume you know does this volume matter like can i drop the weight but increase the volume is that going to create the effect that i think it's supposed to like i yeah programming for me has has gone from something very rigid to something very fluid and and kind of reactive right it's like it's it's this blend between between planning and reaction so it's very cool that you're doing a, a master's in that. Like, what are you focusing in specifically? I mean, I'm going into my thesis next semester. So what I think I'm going to focus on is levels of athlete autonomy and mm. kind of to use what you were saying as an example of how your programming has gone from more rigid to more fluid, like the more rigid your programming is, the easier that is to communicate to someone else because it's like A is A, B is B. There's no, there's no guesswork. It's hard to have something get lost in translation. Whereas the more fluid it is, where you're saying, okay, well, if I drop the reps, but I increase the overall volume, is it going to have this effect? And then if you're trying to be more fluid with your programming and say you're giving an open set to your athlete or you're giving them an RPE, then you also have to educate them and take them through that gray area of what that means. But 
depending on how you communicate that and how well you communicate that, that can be way better than having a rigid, easier to communicate program. But that all just depends on your ability to communicate that and your athlete's ability to understand that and have confidence in their own decisions. Absolutely, man. Oh man, everything you're saying is so interesting. Cause it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's all the shit that uh, like, I've been, I've been very into that. Cause like, yeah, this is my full-time job, but like, I still coach athletes and yeah. like coaching is still a huge passion of mine and like developing, developing athletes or they don't even have to be athletes. Like I, I coach a lot of regular people as well. And man, like the older I get, the more, the more I understand the importance of communication and building trust and building this like this like resilient relationship between yourself and your athlete and learning to understand them it's like you know this person doesn't respond well to me yelling at them like but this person responds really well to me yelling at them me slapping their back right it's like you you have to you have to learn to understand your athlete as an individual and unique human being they're not just um they're not just a computer program that you slap into <laughs> type into Excel, right? It's like, well, we're doing this amount of, of volume here and we're going to add whatever 5% to that next week and so on and so forth. But like, even that, like, as, as you're talking about in terms of like rigid versus fluidity, um, there's, I know, I know there's athletes that I have worked with that respond far better to rigid pro programming. They yeah. respond far better to like, what is the plan? I don't care how I feel. I am hitting the numbers that you give me. Yeah. Right? They don't ask questions. Even when I tell them, I'm like, do you have any questions? Do you have any comments, concerns? Like, is there something about your program you don't like? Something you something you do like? Do you want more of this? Do you want more of that? And they're like, nope, you're good. Like, they're like, no, like, I, don't, right, whatever. I don't want to have a brain coach. Make the XL and then the XL is my brain. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it can take time to... to uh, to discover that in somebody and it can, uh, it can take time to even build up the trust for your athlete to open up the truth to you. Yeah. Right. Because like, if they don't trust you in the beginning, all they have is kind of like, what is my coach expecting of me? Mm -hmm. If this coach, if I get the feeling that this coach is a rigid guy, but I'm, I'm myself intrinsically, I want flexibility, but I don't, I don't feel, um, I don't have the, um, the confidence to bring that up. So I'm just going to continue this, this rigid programming. Right. And it might take several months, six months, a year for, for that athlete to finally open up and be like, you know, tell you, tell me what you really feel, you know, yeah. it, can, it can take a long time. And yeah, my whole view of coaching has, has changed from myself in the driver's seat and the athlete as my car to like, <laughs> my athlete is the driver the car is also the driver and I'm just like on the side with a walkie talkie. I'm kind of like, <laughs> let's do this. Let's, let's, let's try this. You know, it's kind of more like athlete. Um, even the terminology has kind of changed from, um, you know, um, from like making an athlete to developing an athlete or to, to, um, to kind of going through the development process with somebody. You know, yeah. it's, it's really changed over, over 10 years that I've been coaching. So, yeah, I always kind of like to think of it in the analogy of being an advisor, like a coach is just 
should be an advisor depending on the sport, of course, but for yeah. weightlifting and powerlifting, like it's not like you're creating a strategy to beat another team like you would in soccer. It's like, okay, I'm going to give you advice on when we should lift heavy, when we should lift high volume and what you should try and change your technique like, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, okay, this is the strategy we're going to use because this team does that. You're just kind of advising them on how they should go about things. And that's where communication can kind of get tough because like you're saying, some people respond better to that rigid structure. But then say you have someone that needs more flexibility and you say, okay, well, we're going to take like this, let's say we're going to take three heavy sets on this Friday. Okay, what does mm -hmm. that mean? How heavy is heavy? How hard do I go? Do I go so heavy that yeah. my technique turns to shit? Or do I go like just heavy enough that my technique is perfect? And how do yeah, you yeah, yeah. that? Yeah, it's uh, even that um, uh, you were talking about earlier about uh, using like RPEs or reps in reserve. Um, I, I used to be, again, I used to be quite rigid. So I would just type in the number and like, this is what we're going to hit. Right. Um, but um, now if I take on a new client, I almost teach them right out the gate to start taking mental notes, start taking notes in your logbook. Like how did this set feel? How many do you think you had in the tank? Right. And then I start matching that um, like I start matching their perception of a set with like their actual bar speed in the video, for example. Right. Yeah. So like this one guy right now, I'll tell him like, okay, I want you to hit a single at three RIR. So three reps in reserve. So something, this is just for the listeners. I know you know what it is, but for the listeners, they would be like, I want you to hit one rep at something you could have hit for four reps. Right. And he sends me the video and he just blasts it. And he's like, yep, that felt like a three RIR. And I'm like, eh, I think you had like seven, seven or eight in the tank. Yeah. But it's, it's really good to, to even start that because that skill gets better over time. And, and um, do you know who uh, like Mike Tashir is? With like familiar, yeah. yeah, like he really kind of popularized RPE training and kind of like a, a reactive training system. And, uh, oh, that's literally what RTS stands for anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean like that, he, he really influenced the way that I, that I view coaching now. Cause it's like, man, I'm just, I'm typing numbers into an Excel sheet and I talk to you, you know, I talk to you like whatever, almost every day or something, but there's only so much input that I'm getting as a coach that I can create accurate outputs for right. Yeah. That I can accurately react to. So it's like, but you know, very well how you feel like on that day, how you slept the night before, like uh, how fast the bar feels, how fast the movement feels the day of, like, I'm not watching you lift live uh, over, over webcam or something, right. You do, you know, you're doing your entire program without me. And then you're sending me videos after the fact, right. So creating that, in a sense that does create athlete autonomy, right? Giving them flexible ranges at the very minimum, right? Like I want you to hit something between 380 and 415 today yeah. for between two to three reps, but, but I want you to hit three sets, right? So you give them this kind of blend between rigidity and, and some kind of range and you can kind of, um, um, as uh, you can kind of like, um, start adding more flexibility over time as they learn 
to understand themselves and their own efforts a little bit better, right? And I think that long term, that's um, that's a pretty that's a pretty winning strategy. Like a, it's it's a very viable long term strategy. Yeah, definitely. And then in the literature, that phenomenon that you're describing is called autonomy support, because like you're not just giving them the full autonomy to just be like, okay, you're gonna go lift today. <laughs> figure it out <laughs> what movements what movements and whatever use a bar, use, use a bar? Yeah. <laughs> yeah use a bar do whatever yeah but you're giving them that bandwidth of decision making so rather than giving them that whole spectrum of decision where it's like okay go do whatever you want you're like okay here are the parameters so between this weight and this weight this many sets between this many reps and this many reps you're giving them that ability to start making decisions within a safe framework and then yeah. after they've gained that experience making those safe decisions, because as long as they're anywhere within that framework that you give them, they should theoretically be fine, right? Then you can mm -hmm. start feeding them a little more rope, let them make a little bit more open decisions now that they've gained that confidence and understanding. Mm -hmm. Man, that's really cool. Like honestly, if I was if I was to go back to school or something like that, it would be it would be it would be something something along those lines. Either coaching or um, either coaching or obesity epidemiology yeah epidemiology so much more yeah, or, interesting than actual physiology because that's, that's <laughs> why i went into coaching because physiology is like oh okay athlete lift heavy weight fast athlete becomes <laughs> strong and fast we all know that you, yeah that's it like this much but like we get the idea <laughs> how, do I, how do i communicate this to another person and make them understand all of this? <laughs> we get it lift weight make strong i get it <laughs> yeah man like learning trying to understand stuff at a population level like that's where that's where there's some presents some unique challenges you know like what's what are we doing with the ep obesity epidemic like why are we sucking yeah. at treating this this disease why do we suck at this you know like well, if you I would to an obese person and you're like, Hey, you need to eat less and exercise more. They're like, okay, fundamentally your, your sentence has made sense to me in my brain. I understand yeah, the words yeah. you just said, but now how do you help empower them and give them the autonomy? Same as you would with a powerlifting athlete. How do you give them the autonomy to make decisions that's going to allow that to happen? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, that's where the, that's where the complexity and, uh, the compl yeah, the complexity comes in. It's like, I was even, um, I was talking to my other friend, he's uh, studying dietetics right now. And uh, we were talking about like, um, damn it. Something. We're talking about something. I literally something. went, I, I see this guy, I see this guy like once or twice a year and we just talk nonstop for like two hours about research and training. And uh, no, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, we were talking about like, you know, drugs to treat obesity and how like, like why are effective drugs stigmatized against obesity? Like effective drugs are fantastic. Like, and, and we came at it as like, you know, it's probably an issue between like people don't, people are not accepting that obesity is a chronic disease, right? It's a disease state that, that creates changes in your brain and in your body. And it's not as simple as just eat less and move more, right? It's, it's, it's difficult to communicate to people and education alone is not enough. 
there's um, there's a lot more to the more to the puzzle than education, right? And yeah, we were just talking about like uh, semaglutide, I think it was. Um, is this new obesity drug that like just just like kills your appetite, and it shows that it's very effective. Um, and uh, people got mad about it, like they're they're mad that there's an effect. How how dare there be an effective drug for obesity? That was how the title of losing uh, weight easier. Yeah, there was this. Uh, yeah, there was an op-ed piece by um, by uh, by a doctor, and that was the that was the title. How dare there be an effective drug for obesity? It's uh, yeah. Anyway, point is, yeah. If it was, if I was to go back to school, it would be one of those two fields would be very interesting to me. But congratulations, man, and like keep at it because there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay, man, I'm gonna get back to work here. Yeah. Can't be increasing those wait times anymore. No, no. You're, it's all, blame it, blame it on Alex. Blame it on me exactly. sending you all my athletes to get straps and belts. And there you go. Exactly. They're all, they're all in line. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where can everybody find you on the Instagrams and the internets and the buying your things? Check me out, northliftbelts.com. Uh, you can Google me, northlift, one word, belts. On Instagram, I'm at Northlift Belts. Um, also, my training or coaching Instagram is just at Northlift on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's everywhere where I want you to find me. <laughs> Don't go find him at his at his studio. Don't hunt him down. No, no, uh, by appointment only. Yeah. By appointment only. Right, okay, guys. thank you so much for having me on, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing it. It's always good to hear, hear from you, hear your story, hear what's going on. Uh, do you know when you're doing that strap the city thing in Edmonton? Do you have a date for that? Um, I would love to do that uh, either next week or the week following. I kind of want to do like, I would like to time it with the opening of gyms would just be, that would be, that would be perfect. So yeah, I think. Who um, knows when that's going to be at this point. Well, I don't know, man. Kenny, Kenny said that they're coming out with a plan. They're oh, coming out with a reopening oh, okay. plan. After, so, after gym lockdown number three, now they got a plan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, have, they even have the timeline for the fourth lockdown set right into the plan. Yeah. Well, so, they're having K-12 to go back to school in a week. So That's right, yeah. Hopefully people yeah. can go to the gyms because there's no cases coming out of gyms. There's tons of cases coming out of schools. Go get vaccinated, people. The yeah. science is incredible. Okay. <laughs> do some, do some, do some digging on the mRNA vaccines. Incredible, incredible science. It's yeah. it's the coolest shit ever. Yeah, Google, Google Scholar, not you know, not not uh, naturalnews.com or or Mercola.com, please. No, no BuzzFeed. No buzz. <laughs> Actually, you know what? BuzzFeed is big enough that they would probably um, they would probably like there would be people on their ass to keep it super super accurate. That's kind of one of those things. It's 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 the uh, it's the fringe sites yeah. that get to say what they want because there's no there's no quality control there, right? Yeah. It's it's written by two or three guys stuck somewhere in the basement, right? Whereas uh, maybe BuzzFeed, I still wouldn't do that. Maybe <laughs> go, go to Google Scholar. Google Try Scholar. Google Scholar. Yeah, that's right. Or uh, actually go to Google Scholar and then when it t asks you to pay $80 for the paper you want to read, go type that paper into Sci-Hub. 
There you go. That's right. Is that um, is Sci-Hub the the one with the Raven? Yeah, the one with the That's Raven. There. Where all the articles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, just ooh. free research. Ooh. Free science, the way it should be. <laughs> free science, it. the way it should be. But then, who's going to pay for the research? I don't know how the economy works. I just want to read the research. All right. That's a that's a that's another loaded topic for another time, maybe. That'll be a good podcast later on. We can get a few we can get a few people on for that one. Oh man, just go back go back and ask some uh, old profs. Or you're still at the school. So you're you're still at the school. You yeah. you have access to those people. Yeah, All right. Man. I should get some U of A profs on here. We'll talk to Greg Knuckles. I know he's got opinions on that one. Absolutely. Oh man, we didn't even talk about how belts worked. Okay, so I'm just going to plug this. Google Greg Knuckles, the belt Bible. Okay, if you want to know how belts work, that's the fantastic. It's a 15 minute read. It'll answer literally every question. Greg Knuckles, the belt Bible. Go check it out. All right, long story short, no belt, back do this. (laughs) Back stay like this. Pretty close, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Which I mean, with low loads, fine. With really heavy loads, maybe a little bit less fine, but not the worst in the world. But you got to be accustomed to the stimulus. It's a long story. It's fine. Oh, my God. You did say everything just right, though. That was good. That was just just in that sweet spot between the two extremes. Yeah. Wow, do you study this stuff or something? I, I might have a degree and I might be getting a second one. No. <laughs> Start a collection. All right. All right man. Yeah, Thank you so too, much man. for having me on. Yep. Thanks everybody for listening. And then hopefully you guys can check out Strap the City when gyms are back open in Alberta. We'll keep you posted about that on the Instagram, on my Instagram and the Northwest Instagram. Thank you very much. 